Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. It was August the 31st in 1983 when Korean Airlines Flight 007 left New York City for Seoul, Korea. It stopped in Anchorage, Alaska, where it was refueled, filled their tanks, and then they headed for Korea, or so they thought. The automatic pilot malfunctioned, didn't engage correctly. It was only off by just a few degrees. After an hour or so, they were, uh, they were only off by 12 miles. But after five hours, they were in Soviet airspace. Now, if this had happened 10 years later, things would have worked out a lot differently. But in 1983, United States and Soviet relations were uh, filled with mistrust and fear. And we may actually not know exactly what happened to Korean Airlines Flight 007 because no one was allowed to go in and retrieve the black box. And we do know that in the darkness, a Russian jet shot down this this airliner full of passengers, 269 to be exact, passengers and crew died. I want you to think about this. If the point of departure is off by just a little, the deviation in the end can be disastrous, overwhelmingly large. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. John, the Apostle John, who wrote and gave to us the Gospel of John, he gave to us 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of the Revelation, uh, is, is really dear to us, just as he was dear to Jesus. His testimony and his gospel reflect a different perspective. We talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but then there's John. He, he even begins differently. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then, of course, the dialogue that takes place in John chapter 3 is very enamoring. As we look at a leader by the name of Nicodemus who, searching, seeking, weighing what he should do, is given by Jesus words that have echoed through the ages, leading millions upon millions to the Lord as the gospel is encapsulated in just one verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then there's the intimacy of chapter 14 of John's gospel that has always held me close as I've read it and as I've shared it. When Jesus said to his disciples who weren't sure what was, was ahead, he knowing what was about to come comforted them and comforts us by saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Those words, that heart, his actions draw us close to John. I suppose it's his faith that toward the end of the gospel, as he records for us, as do others, the story of the resurrection, as he paints the picture, and we know that John wrote this because he kind of interjects a little uh, braggadocious nature as he describes two people that ran to the tomb, and, you know, Peter and John were the two guys, and John kind of points out that he won the race. And he gets there. Peter, uh, he stops at the door. Peter, you know, runs past him and goes right in to the sepulcher. But he's standing there, and he's looking in, and he sees the linen clothes, and he sees what's, what's happened here. And it says in chapter 20 of John that he saw and he believed. That was all it took. The resurrection changed everything for him. And let me suggest to you, as they have sung about today, the loving arms of Jesus are still outstretched. He's still alive, amen? He's still available to any and all who need him, who call upon his name. And John, John just had to see, and John believed. And he wrote everything that he wrote. He even gives us the, 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 the reason that he wrote everything he wrote. Chapter 20 and chapter 21, both, he, he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. In other words, all that I'm doing, all that I'm saying, all that I'm writing, I'm doing it for one reason, and that is that you might believe that it's true what I'm telling you, that Jesus is alive, and he is who he says he is. Now, that's a point worth noting because, as I mentioned a moment ago, if we begin to deviate from the truth, from a true line or from a true source, if we begin to deviate just a little, at first it's not noticeable, but over a period of time it can become devastating and even deadly. First John, as I directed you to go to this morning, is, um, is, a, is a later in life testimony. John's an old man now, and he's, in fact, one of the oldest, perhaps the only one left. Others had died different ways, but John gives us his testimony. And it's, it's something that he says and how he says it, and the, the entire book speaks to it, but he begins right off the bat by mentioning some key phrases or key words. And so I want to begin verse number one. 1 John, verse number 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life, the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you the eternal life, that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard Declare we unto you 
that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Well, this is as close as you can get at about A.D. 95 to a personal friend of Jesus, one who knew him, who knew the man. He was there when the things that we've read about and we celebrate and we sing about happen. He's, and, and everybody else is gone, but he's, he was there when Jesus lived. He saw him die. He saw him resurrected. And now some time has elapsed, and here's, here's why he writes this. This is why it's important, why it's important for us today. Because John saw some deviation in the story, in what he was hearing about who Jesus was, about what others were preaching, and he's writing to make sure that what Jesus said and communicated was not perverted. It had been 60 years since Jesus left. Now, in, in Eastern culture, they communicate store history a different way. We read it. We like books. We like videos. We like to, to process information totally different. In Jesus' day, it was handed down orally. It was passed along by storytelling. And so there wasn't a newspaper. There weren't different uh, chronicles of Jesus' life and death yet. There, there weren't any authors that were perhaps writing a lot of volumes on this, but but the story was being told, and as it has been told, I, years ago I did this in the church I pastored. I, I lined up about 10 people on the front row before the service, and, I, and I, while I was preaching, I told a story at the beginning, and I, told, and I said, you tell that story while I'm preaching and let it get down here, and I paused about halfway through, and don't you know that that little story I told from here to here got incredibly distorted? <laughs> it happens, and John was seeing it happen. Six decades passed. John is concerned, well, let me, let me use a couple big words. And, uh, I'm a hayseed, I'm a little farm boy, so I, I like using big words. People think I'm a lot smarter than I am. So there, there's a word called orthodoxy. Ortho means right, doxy means belief, right belief. Orthodoxy means right belief. And if you want to change that, you would say hetero or wrong, wrong Heterodoxy is wrong belief. This is orthodoxy is right belief. And then there was, there's uh, orthopraxis, right living, as opposed to heteropraxis, which is wrong living. John was observing wrong living. He was observing uh, wrong speaking or, or a wrong belief, if you will, and he's seeing how this is being passed along. And he's concerned about not just what's happening, but what's going to happen if it's left unattended. Again, if, if the point of departure is off just a little, the deviation in the end can be disastrous and even deadly. So in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, look at that, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our eyes have handled, the word of life. And just the verbiage reminds us of his gospel and the way he speaks. And he emphasizes this for a reason. He didn't just start in the manger. He, he talks about this for a reason. And he stakes his claim. And the first thing John says to us is this. John says, I heard him. I heard him speak. <laughs> Have you ever had the experience 
of walking into a room or into a meeting and, and someone's talking about a story or they're talking about something that happened, a wreck on the, on the road or uh, something that happened in, uh, in, in a meeting or whatever, and, and they're telling this story of that and, and they weren't even there. And you're listening, and then you, you, as you begin to listen, you're thinking, wait a minute, that's not how it happened. And so you interject, excuse me, I was there. <laughs> this is what really happened. You're immediately credentialed in the room because you were there in person. And what John is doing here, he's credentialing himself of saying, I, I heard Jesus speak. I know what I heard. I listened to him. And, and he cuts through all the clutter. I'm not interested in what you think or what someone else says. This is what I heard. Well, that's important, especially in the culture in which we live, which is filled with what, what I call the three illiteracies. There's biblical illiteracy, and I'll get to that in a little bit. There's historic illiteracy. We don't know our own history, let alone a lot of Bible history. And there is civic illiteracy. Many people in this great nation don't even know how the government works. I mean, how civics actually work. And so you've got biblical, historical, and civic illiteracy. And when you have those three things, here's what can happen. Anybody can say anything about anything, and many people think that it's true. John said, I heard him, heard what he said. But then he goes a little farther, and I love this about John, and it's intentional on his part. He says, I have um, I've seen, I have looked upon him. Now, one commentator said John just got excited here, and what John does in this verse, he, he kind of repeats himself, and he just kind of reiterates the same thing, but no, no, no. He intentionally said something two distinct ways. In fact, he said this. He said, I have seen that which we have seen. I, I saw him. And in the Greek, that word is haran, means physical sight. I saw him. I literally looked at him with my eyes. But then he said, that which we have looked at or gazed upon, that's a different word. That's thessali. That means we understood him. We understood who he was. So John says, I heard him speak, but then he says, and I saw him with my eyes, and I got who he was. I understood who he was. There's many who look at church or they're around church, even grow up in church. You can hear a lot of the gospel. You can see a lot of the church, but you never get who Jesus is here, and that's dangerous. John's saying, not only did I see him, but I understood him. I got it. I grasped who he was spiritually and intellectually. I got it. He's the son of God. He isn't just a teacher. He isn't just someone who heals. He's the son of God, the creator of the universe. And then <coughs> John says, I touched him. We touched him. Our, our hands have handled here. That's how he says it. And, and our hands have handled of the word of life. This is important. This is incredibly important. It's, inc it's important because of the context John was in, but it's also important because of the context that we are in, where we live and what we are hearing and what's being taught <clears throat> all around us. It's a big deal. Now, Luke even records Jesus saying to the disciples, behold, my hands and my feet is, is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh, and bones, as you see me have. He, he was physical. 
He physically rose from the dead. Now, if you believe that, say amen. amen. It really matters that that happened. John in his gospel in chapter 20 refers to the interaction with Thomas. You remember that story, don't you? When Thomas wasn't there, when Jesus appeared to the disciples and he shows up, oh, Jesus was here. Ah, I believe it if I can touch him and I can put my hand in his hand and hand in his side. I, I'll, I'll believe it then. And you'll remember about eight days later, Jesus comes and there was Thomas and Jesus, <laughs> just like Jesus knows every question or doubt you have, he knew exactly what Thomas was wondering about as well. And so Thomas, come here, put your hand here, put your hand here. And Thomas didn't need that. John saw him, he heard him, he got who he was, and he touched him. And lives are still being changed by that power of the resurrection. Now, here's where it applies to us. This is applied to John. He was writing here in opposition to a couple of schools of thought. One were the ascetics who believed that Jesus seemed to have a real body. It's not like he really rose from the dead. It's just like he seemed to have a real body. And John clears the air. He said, no, no, no. I touched him. My hands touched him. He was, he was alive. And then there were the Gnostics. This is really applicable to our day. Gnosticism expresses a specific religious experience. It doesn't lend itself to, to language or philosophy, but it's but it's expressed through, get this, the medium of myth. The medium of myth. So John says, no, I heard him, I saw him, I understood who he was, I touched him. And you may think, well, Tim, that was thousands of years ago. What does it matter here and what does it matter now? It's incredibly important. Michael Knowles wrote a book recently called Speechless. It's a great book and it's, it really does a concise job in a few short pages of explaining uh, Marxism and, and its influence in culture today. Uh, in 1843, Marx called for, hear this, the ruthless criticism of all that exists. His, his most devoted followers understood that political revolution required cultural upheaval, so we've got to sow all of this discord and disillusionment in the people to, to shape the culture. And so years later, Herbert Marcuse and, and, and Eric Fromm and the Frankfurt School here in America by the way, in the last century, contributed by developing an entire academic discipline oriented toward critiquing and transforming society rather than understanding it and teaching it. It's called critical theory. Marxism, the worldview, it stands in opposition, it's, it's, it's atheistic, it's godless. It, 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 you can't have God and you can't have this line of thinking. So the premise is wrong, the starting point is wrong, and just like we thought this described earlier, if the starting point's wrong, you could go the wrong direction and not realize it until it's too late. Now, let me be, be my family research counsel self for just a minute or two, if you'll indulge me, because I've been preaching fast, and so I, I think I've got a little time build up, so stay with me. The Family Research Council, since 1983, has worked to develop and provide research that speaks to the families of America on the issues of life, family, and religious freedom. And so from that data, 
George Barna has put together a worldview study of America, helping us to understand what it is, what a worldview is, for that matter. Uh, everyone has a worldview. It's the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter through which you see life and understand life. It's how you, you understand everything, and it, it helps you to make sense of the world. You need a worldview to figure things out, and everybody has one based on something, built on something, shaped in a particular way. You've got a worldview, and every decision you make is based on that worldview. Now, if you look next, that your goals, your values, your morals, your faith, your identity, your finances, relationships, your lifestyle, all of that is decided in your heart, in your mind, by your worldview. And if you'll look at the culture as a whole, if you'll go to the next slide real quick, uh, you'll see that uh, your worldview, uh, there are competing worldviews that are out there shaping what yours is. For example, there's biblical theism, that's who we are. That's what we believe. We believe there is one God, and Jesus is his son, and it's the gospel. In, 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 in essence, you can see it displayed there. But then there's postmodernism, uh, Marxism, moral theism, nihilism, uh, Eastern mysticism. And in America, all of those things, John was speaking against the aesthetics and the Gnostics. In America, uh, the worldview is being shaped by all of these components, and it's very important to know that because the byproduct of that is a culture without a biblical worldview. Next slide. I want you to look at this. According to detailed research by, by George and, and the Family Research Council, only 6% of Americans have a true biblical worldview. You see everything in life through the lens of Scripture. You see economics, you see sexuality, you see um, foreign policy, you see everything that's going on in life through a biblical lens. Now that parses its way out into 21% uh, of those who attend evangelical churches, 9% of self-identified Christians, 19% of all Christians, born-again Christians in America. Only 4% of millennials have a biblical worldview, according to George's latest research, about a year, year and a half old. Now, what shapes worldview? I, I gave you some pockets of, of influence, but let's go a little deeper in the influence because, next slide, your, your worldview shaped between the age of 2 and 13. It's interesting that between those ages, a, a worldview is formed, and by the age of 13, that worldview according to George Barna, is the worldview you'll live the rest of your life with unless something changes drastically. 2 to 13. Why, why do you think that between the age of 2 to 13, there is such a concerted effort to shape the minds of those young people? It's because that's when it is shaped. Because after it's shaped, after you, you experiment and establish it, then you begin to integrate it and refine it and apply it to your life in your teen years and into your adult years. And by the time you are an adult, you get really good at it and you become a transmitter. You're consistent in your adult life, 25 to 59, and then you live out your life. So what shapes worldview? I mentioned the things that are around us and the shaping of worldview, but let's go to the next slide because this one's a little deeper. And it asks the question, what shapes, in what, what sources influence uh, by age in America? The number one influence across the board 
for children, teens, and adults are movies. And I pushed back with George a few years ago about that because that's been consistent over the last five or, five or eight years. He said a movie's not just an event at a theater. It is all of the work years prior to developing it, strategically building into it lines of thought, lines that will shape people by what it does or what it presents or what it says or, or how it's portrayed. And by the way, in the 1960s, Walt Disney said that movies can shape the minds of young people in America. He understood it then. Movies, then television, music, Internet, social media, public policy, family. And for children and teens and adults, it begins to shift a little bit because for children, peers, peers, and adults, books. And for children, school, then athletics, and then affinity groups for adults. You can look it over, and I can make these available to your pastor. My point is this. Everybody in the world, everybody in America has a worldview. You understand things. And it's being shaped by something. And if it's not the Word of God, it's something else. And these are the things that do most of the shaping right here because they have the time of most people in America and in the world. Now, this is an important thing because when John said, I heard him, I saw him, I got who he was, and I even touched him, it had an incredible impact on the voices of that day who were saying, no, Jesus didn't really have a physical body, or that this is all built around a, a myth. And, and I've always heard it would get bad, but what John was seeing, we are seeing today on a different level. You see, if Jesus had a real physical body, and that's why I want to just camp for a minute, if Jesus did have a real physical body, and I believe he did, if you believe he did, say amen. amen. If he did, then Jesus... God's son really did come to earth. And if he did, then he really, the, the account of his death and his life are, are true. And, and the resurrection really happened. And if, if, if someone came back from the grave, then, then there's power over death. And he has it. And if there's power over death, then his claims are true. And, and if there's anybody that needs to be served, it's the one who has power over death, hell, and the grave. And then I have to admit that he's God and I'm not, and, and that I'm a sinner, and I have to repent, and I have to live another way. You see, if the resurrection really happened, it has a lasting impact. It matters much. And if that's diluted then the point of origin is off just a little, and over time it gets farther and farther off until it can have horrendous impact. There was a teacher uh, called Serenthus, and uh, Jesus discipled John, of course, and John discipled Ignatius, who discipled a fellow by the name of Polycarp. You perhaps have read about the, the martyr Polycarp. And, and all of John and Polycarp and Serenth, they, they all stood against this Serenthus who had this Gnostic view. And, and I know it's 2,000 years ago, but it's relevant because they believed in the Jesus of myth. It's just as if it happened. Now, dial in with me for just a second. Rudolf Boltmann, a German thinker who died in the 60s, had a profound influence through uh, the, the shaping of institutions in America, teaching in college levels, this, and it was called different things, but many places, Jesus of history versus the Jesus of faith. And they would compare the two and deconstruct faith 
for millions of young Christian boys and girls who would go off to college. If you ever wonder why people can call themselves a Christian and blatantly stand for things that aren't Christian, this is the reason why. Because this reasoning teaches, it teaches this. It, it says the disciples just sat around after the, after the death of Christ and, and because no one can really raise from the dead. They, they had to find a way to communicate who Jesus was. So they, they used a metaphor. They, they know that Jesus, the Jesus of history is dead, but we can promote the Jesus of myth. And so you take the miracles. You take the miracle of, of the calming of the sea. What that really teaches us, Tim, is that Jesus can calm the troubled waters of everybody's soul. Or what about the feeding of the 5,000? No, that just teaches us that, that Jesus has the capacity to just feed the souls of many. It's, it's, not, it's not that he really did rise from the dead. It, it's as if he did. It's a Jesus of myth. Now, if that's embraced, John saw it being embraced, by the way, then something is going to be really wrong down the road. And John knew that. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no miracles, there's no God. There's no word of God. There are no standards. There's, there's no such thing as sin. And there's no Savior. We don't need to repent. No forgiveness is necessary. No one can be the Lord over you. So you can do anything you want, live any way you want, and it's all okay. And that's where we are in many circles. But John said, no, wait a minute. I heard him personally. And I saw him with my eyes. And I understood who he was. I even touched him. And that changes the trajectory of every false teaching that was happening in the days of John. And it certainly works today to help keep us on track as we stand for the un unchanging truth of God's word. Somebody say amen to that. That's where we are. So, what's John saying to us? What's he, what should we do with what he gives us here in verse number one? Well, I think he gives us three things, and the first one's this. I think John's plea calls us to know Jesus like he knew Jesus. <laughs> know him like he knew him. How do you know him? Well, first of all, he listened to him. He heard what Jesus said. Are we listening to him today? Is his voice more important than any other voice in your life? Is the first thing you pick up in the morning this device or this? <laughs> Somebody said, why do you not pick up your phone first? I said, let me help you. Lay your Bible on your phone when you go to bed. The first thing you'll pick up is the word of God. If your day begins with the word of God and if you hear what Jesus says every day of your life, it will have a tremendous impact in how you live your life. Amen. Amen. John said, I heard him. Then he saw him. Well, Jesus physically may not be here, but I'm going to tell you something. I see Jesus in many places. I certainly see him when I come on the campus here at New Freedom Church. Same in the changed lives or in the pews, the hands that I've shook since I've been here today, those who I've talked to, those who have gotten to know, those who have, who have really made a difference and are making a difference in ministry right here. I, I, I saw him in the worship team this morning as they lifted up the name of Jesus and as we sang together. You can see Jesus if you're looking for him. You can. And in getting who he is, as a pastor... And I pastored for 22 years, 
two great churches here in Ohio. My greatest fear wasn't that we wouldn't make our budgets or that the pews would be empty or that the church, something would go wrong with the church building. <laughs> oh, I thought about those things, but that wasn't my main concern. My main concern as a pastor and leader of a church is that the people that I led didn't just come to church and feel good. They didn't just become a member of the church or even tithe to the church, but that they truly knew who Jesus was. Because when you know who Jesus is, you really know it, shapes every part of your life. When you have a biblical world, it shapes every part of your being and discipling and, and securing those believers who know him and making them stronger in their faith. And then lastly, that John said, I think, know him like I knew him. Make sure you, you get a hold of him. You touch him. You know he's real. In such a way, nobody can talk you out. No, no one was going to talk John out of his faith. And you and I need to have that kind of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose from the dead and is alive today. We need to know him like John knew him, and we need to touch him like John touched him so that no one can shape our mindset as we follow Christ. Truly know him like he knew him then I, I would suggest to you that John's saying to us that we need to live for him the way that he lived for him. Standing firm against those who say, well, it's kind of like Jesus was really alive. No, 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 he was alive. No, it's kind of like the word of God is true. No, it is true. Well, it's kind of like the, Jesus is the only way to heaven. No, he is the only way to heaven. Not kind of like. And when you, when you begin to speak, trust, trust me, when you begin to speak out against many things that are embraced today, you get handed your hat sometimes by those who don't even want to hear you say anything about life, that a, that a, that a baby is truly a life, a creation of God at conception. Oh, no, no, it's, it's just a fetus. No, no, it's a life created by God. Amen? It's alive. Well, you can just wait and decide after. No, no, no. It's, it's, that's true. Many people don't like, they, they don't like talking about marriage in, in a biblical frame, you know, or, or now, man, I, I'm getting canceled for just saying that men can't have babies. This is crazy stuff. I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. Uh, or that you can change your, your sex. Bruce Jenner still Bruce Jenner. I'm going to leave it right there. I'm just going to leave it right there. Um, I know people that wouldn't clap for that. I really do. Theodore Dalrymple, all of you know, no, you've never heard of that name, I'm sure. He's a conservative mind. He, this is what he said, and this is Hang on here. This, is, this really worked me over when I, when I heard this. He said, one of the ways in which Marxism, social justice, totalitarian, totalitarian thinking, uh, exert control is by humiliating people into admitting or professing that something 
is true, which they know is not true. Forcing them to say things they know to be false. That is the ultimate exertion of the power and control desired. When people say things they know not to be true, but they say it anyway. The control is complete. They've done their job. John said, oh, no. (laughs) You can teach what you want. You can say what you want. But I heard Jesus' voice. John says to us that I saw him. I literally, with these baby blue eyes, looked at him. I got who he was. I understood who he was. I even touched him after he rose from the dead. You can't talk me out of that. And I will stand for what is true, what the Bible says is true. And lastly, I think John says to us that we should share this truth with the integrity that he did as well. Be faithful. You see, this is good stuff. In fact, it's the very best, amen? It changed my life. I was a 14-year-old boy who followed a cute girl to church camp when I was 14. And it was this that got a hold of me. And I got saved and I've not gotten over it yet. I married the girl, by the way, 41 years ago. We have two children, two grandchildren, but that's a story for another day. Look, this works. It'll change your life. It'll help you to have a strong character. It'll help you to live with integrity. It'll help you to be strong in business and and honorable in all of your interaction. It will bless and help your marriage. It will give you a strong marriage, and that in turn will bless you with wonderful children who will love God and serve God and grandchildren, all the grandchildren. Then you can just pour all the Jesus you want into them because you know better than their parents, right, grandpa and grandma? Okay. The resurrection has the power to convince doubters. Just ask Thomas. Resurrection has the power to convince skeptics. You can ask Jesus' half-brother, James, over in 1 Corinthians, first part of that chapter, as, as, as Paul lists all the people that saw Jesus resurrected, the hundreds of people, and then he names a few names. One of them was James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote a little book over here in the last part of the New Testament, and he begins with referring to Jesus not as my half-brother, but as Lord. Why? Because of the resurrection. It has power to convince the fearful. If you're afraid today, let me tell you, the resurrected Jesus is alive. He's here, and he wants to help you walk through your fear. He he can. I know that because he did it for a fellow named Peter. Peter wasn't afraid anymore after the resurrection. And even the enemies of Christ. I've watched people who hated, said they hated Jesus. They didn't. Paul thought he hated Jesus, but he met Jesus. The resurrection changed his mind. Amen. He never was the same. It matters. Alfred Ackley pastored in California back in the 1930s. He was uh, getting ready for Sunday, Easter Sunday services, and <clears throat> he was listening on the radio to pastors in the East because of the time change. He's getting ready. And they were preaching, and he, met, he heard, tuned in to one of those liberal theologians who said it's kind of like Jesus rose from the dead, but, you know, we, it's, 
it's, it's kind of a theory and we're working on, you know. And, and so he's shaving, getting ready, and he hears this preacher and he gets upset. He gets this righteous indignation. And so he goes to church that morning. He told his wife, he said, listen to that garbage. And man, he goes and preaches the resurrection like you never heard. Ah, both barrels, man. He just really lifts up Jesus, comes home, eats lunch, and still belly aches all afternoon. And I can't believe that he's preaching that false uh, gospel and goes back that night to church, preaches the resurrection again, stronger than he ever did before. Comes home from church. His wife's had a belly full of his complaining. She said, just shut the door in your office and write, write down what you're feeling because I've heard about enough. <laughs> so he does. He goes to his office, sits down, and he writes, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Hallelujah. He's alive. John heard him. He saw him. He got him. And he touched him. And that matters. Remember, if the point of departure is off just a little, the deviation in the end can be disastrously and overwhelmingly large. <clears throat> you may think, well, I'm one person. How can I make a difference? What's my voice matter in a moment like this? Well, there was a man by the name of Edward Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher, and God laid upon his heart to lead his class to the Lord. And so he began to speak to his different class members, and he went, he went to where one of the class members worked, and he began to share Jesus with him. In fact, in the back room, Edward Kimball led Dwight L. Moody to the Lord. Dale Moody became an evangelist who spoke around the world, and through his ministry, a man by the name of F.B. Meyer came to faith in Christ. Eppie Meyer uh, was so deeply stirred, he embarked on a far-reaching evangelistic ministry. And while he was preaching, a college student by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman accepted Christ as their Savior. And he, he hired a baseball player named Billy Sunday, and they did evangelistic crusades all over the country. Had a great one down in North Carolina. And, and they wanted Billy Sunday to come back. He couldn't make it. And so they hired uh, a guy named Mordecai Ham, a friend of Billy Sunday's, he went down and he preached. And while he was preaching in North Carolina, uh, a young man by the name of Billy Graham walked down the aisle and gave his heart to Christ. All because a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball was determined to win all of his students to the Lord. I don't know. I don't know what you can do. I know what God's called me to do, but I'm of the opinion he's calling all of us to kind of be like John, to live a life like we really have heard from Jesus, to live a life like we really have seen who Jesus is and understand who Jesus is, to live a life like we have really been in contact with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It matters because there's a lot of junk being circulated and if hearts embrace 
a false narrative. Again, the point of departure, if it's just a little off, it can mean the difference between life and death. I don't know where you are, but I know this much. There's a God who loves you so much, he gave his son to die for you. And that resurrected Savior is here today. And he wants to touch your life and transform your life. So you'll leave here not the way you came, but being the person he's created you to be through and through. If you don't know him as your Savior, you can know him today. If you need to be closer, you can get closer today. If you need to see yes to Jesus, say yes to Jesus in some area of your life that he's been speaking to you about, maybe an area of ministry, you can do that this morning.